2: TBI people. Life moves on. Inspiration help listeners. That are inspiration of a bridge of hope.
0: I love it.
3: Trying to help each other
0: a lifeline. Part of it also is we started doing it. It's not not because we just wanted to tell everyone to see what happened to us. But also, we wanted to get better talking ourselves with the phaser, and we wanted to... One day, it's not going to... The phaser's not leaving it, but we'd like to crush it a little bit.
2: Let's listen in.
1: Listen in. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Good.
2: Wonderful.
1: How was everybody's weekend? Uh, it's...
4: it's boring. (laughs) Boring? (laughs) Yeah...
3: My sister got married.
1: That's awesome! Congratulations. Where,
3: where did you do that? Uh, my dad's club, which is Chevy Chase Club. Oh, oh, that's
0: very nice. Thank you,
1: Pat. How was yeah.
0: your weekend? Um, we went down on uh, for the day of, on sa- Saturday went to uh, Richmond. To watch uh, Patty's, uh, I can't say words, her nep- nephew, nurse, Nate, nurse, the girl, young niece. girl, niece. She is uh, like 10 years old, she had a soccer game, so we went to go
2: watch soccer. Nice. <laughs> Mike, how
1: about you? Anything not exciting? Much.
2: No, not much. The stewards weren't on, so what am I to do? Nothing. <laughs>
1: Well, today, once again, we are very, very lucky to have a special guest with us. Um, Today, we have with us Dr. Penny Wolf, PhD. She's a clinical psychologist, and she specializes in neuropsychology and rehab psychology. For our listeners, you won't be surprised to hear that she uh, works at the MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital. That's where we really? get all of our,
5: where we get all of
1: our experts, um, or all of our free volunteers. That's what I should say. And she's been there since two thousand six, and she works primarily on the inpatient team uh, for the brain injury unit. She does both evaluation and treatment, and she works with folks with all different kinds of neurologic changes, so acquired brain injury, stroke. Dementia, aneurysm, tumors, and all other sorts of bad things that nobody wants to know anything about unless they have to. Welcome, Dr. Wolf. So happy to have you. We tend to be a first name basis here, but we might we might actually be able to uh, say Dr. Wolf. We could never say Dr. Purple Towel. Still can't say it well. <laughs> but Penny is is good as well. So welcome. What should our listeners know about you?
5: Well, um, I've been at NRH now for 15 years, which I cannot believe, it doesn't seem like it. As you mentioned, I primarily work on the inpatient side. We have a large department of psychologists and some of them are almost exclusively outpatient, some are kind of a mixture of both. I do primarily inpatient with a few psychotherapy cases that I see for follow up after people leave the hospital. And I also am the co-director of our brain, brain injury service here at the hospital. I think that's the basics.
1: One question that I like to to ask is, what do you like to do for fun?
5: What do I like to do in, in these times? Well, <laughs> I really, my, I
1: know it's probably not fair, but yes.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's been, I, I had to answer that for something else recently. It's very hard in the midst of all this because I really, all I'm doing is working and going home and not getting around anybody. I, if things were normal, I would definitely um, like to be outside more with Friends, um, like right, this is the perfect weather to be sitting like at a cafe table outside having a coffee or something. I miss <laughs> doing those kinds of things right now. I like hiking, so this is also good hiking weather, which I can do because I can do that by myself.
1: Very good. Well, we're glad that you're working today and you can be part of the slow road to better. Uh, what I'll do is turn it over to the group. So, some of the f- members you've Already know and some you met this morning. So with that, I'm going to be quiet and turn it over to them. Does anybody have any questions
4: for Dr. Wolf? Me 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 me. All right, Kitty. Yeah, during and after my hospital, Dr. Wolf 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 Wolf, wolf and I, uh, talk talk and um, uh, friends to to us to to me. And then I like uh, during my week uh, I was suicidal thoughts because I was not happy. Hong Kong, not Hong Kong, and I was uh, uh, a ex 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 boy ex girl ex boyfriend and I am just not happy.
5: What did you want to ask me about that?
4: Forward not backward.
5: That she went forward and not backwards. Mhm.
4: Mhm. I was going to say, do you think you could tell our
1: listeners or give some insight into maybe some of the emotional issues that Kitty was referring to and Sure. what families can
4: do? uh i i was a traumatized trauma <laughs> i was traumatized trauma and i am t TBI, right but dr wolf helped me cope uh, with my feeling and i am just
5: uh helpful to dr wolf mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess you know what she's saying and i have to be cautious because i don't want to be crossing any lines of you know confidentiality here but i mean i think everyone who knows kitty knows that she has come a long way and she really struggled at the beginning and it was very very hard and she never gave up she is somebody who just kept pushing forward even when she felt really at her lowest point she still kept pushing forward and I can't take any credit. I mean, I was here to help her and to support her, but she did all the work. Mm -hmm. And I wanna make that clear for everybody that whenever you're going through psychotherapy or anything that you're the person who's doing the work, the psychotherapist is there to be your guide to help you through it.
0: It, So how did you, how is the difference of, uh, See, so there's a traumatic brain injury, right? Mm-hmm. So with the M it's is a I can never say the word it's a medium mild mild
5: like TBI
0: Yeah so like I was a penetrating TBI so like how is the like how does that really work you think when you're when you have a penetrating TBI that they don't know what to do or something like how does that work
5: Do you mean with regard to your rehabilitation or with emotional Well I I guess I didn't, I think, I don't know, maybe the first couple of
0: years, I was trying all these different good medicines, so I was feeling excited and happy and everything, so.
5: Yeah, well, it depends. Um, There's so many factors that go into whether someone experiences depression after stroke or brain injury. There's certainly a higher incidence of depression and anxiety after brain injury or stroke. And it could be also due to things like tumor or other things. It's not just limited to those categories or a gunshot wound, any of those. What factors are important are kind of what's your personality like prior to this happening to you and what coping skills do you have? You also have biological changes that happen in the brain um, due to structural changes. So if you get shot, certain areas of the brain are gonna be affected as a bullet goes through Um, If you have a brain injury, there's usually more diffuse injuries in the brain, but there may also be some very specific areas affected. Stroke, same thing. It may be very specific. It may be more widespread depending on the size of the stroke. And so depending on which parts of the brain are affected, it's going to play into whether you develop depression or you don't. So that's one piece of it. But then there's also neurochemicals that get disrupted if you have damage to the brain so you may have a drop in serotonin or norepinephrine which increases depressive symptom risk so there's so many factors going into it it's not like everybody comes out the same
0: because i had the uh the bullet hit the uh, at night the night vision exploded so it, it went all over inside my brain and uh and but i don't remember like six months i don't remember and. And right. I showed up going to Chicago, and just I was like, okay, I'm going to get back to kind of get back in shape, go back to the army, and I like didn't understand I was missing half a head and everything. Like,
4: what is an uh, inpatient vs outpatient
5: for for psychology? Mm-hmm. Neuropsychology. Um, so a lot of people again. It kind of depends on the injury and where it happens. Um, The word I just used, agnosia, when people have traumatic brain injury, a lot of times initially they are not aware of their own issues or deficits. And that's what that agnosia is. So oftentimes with brain injury, like traumatic brain injury, people will come in and they're really confused at the beginning. They don't really know what's happening. And so you don't actually see a lot of sadness early on. You see more frustration as like, he was describing like, what's wrong with, you know, why am I in the hospital? I don't understand this. Why am I getting all these therapies? And in a way that's protective. So at the beginning, there's not a lot of depression. Usually it usually starts coming when people's self-awareness starts to come back and they start recognizing, oh my gosh, I can't do this, I can't walk to the bathroom by myself. I can't talk right now. And when they start getting that awareness, the, the depression starts to hit.
3: Mm.
5: However, with stroke, it's sometimes like that, but a lot of times with stroke, it happens sooner in the process because they they don't tend to have as much of the agnosagnosia as persons who had traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. And so early on in the inpatient stay, there might be more involvement in dealing with adjustment and You know, feeling that loss of control very early in the process, like feeling like their whole life has been changed, and um, so it kind of comes at different stages, and everyone is different, and when it hits them. Mm -hmm. And my job is to try to keep track of that while they're on the inpatient side. You know, again, trying to see whether or not are they having symptoms of depression, are they feeling suicidal, are they anxious and trying to treat that while they're inpatient. And then at the time when it's time to discharge, recommending whether that person should continue on with seeing somebody to help cope with everything that's going on or whether they don't need that right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll need it later, maybe they won't need it at all. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of a continuum of care of just trying to make sure people get the best recovery possible. So do you think either stroke
3: or TBI you see or NRH sees more stroke or TBI?
5: Well, um, the, probably there's a higher percentage of stroke at, at NRH um, because we have an entire stroke service, but we also, my particular unit, which is the brain injury service, we also get a lot of stroke patients. The, the number of traumatic brain injuries is less than what you might expect for our particular unit because we get pretty much every neurological condition under the sun. So people who have brain tumors and just had a resection, um, people who had aneurysms. Sometimes we have people who come in with conditions that nobody can figure out what it is. We get all of that. So TBI is, I would say, maybe 20%, 25% of the unit.
4: Like you are thinking, emotional, or brain process, right?
5: Yeah, so when I do my assessments at the beginning, I always have to to do a little bit of cognitive screening to look at people, how their, you know, particular injury has affected their brain, but I'm also doing a pretty thorough clinical interview and assessing mood, and I ask every patient, which people get a little shocked when I first meet them, and I'm asking them, are you thinking of ending your life or are you wanting to give up? And sometimes get, people get a little put off that I ask that right up front, but I have to know that. Do
3: you actually say that, like, basically point blank?
5: Yes. Or like, oh, all right. I usually start with, at any point, have you felt like giving up? that's usually my kind of first question. And then if they say, no, not at all, then I kind of just clarify, okay, so you've never wanted to hurt yourself or this or that, and then I go on. But if they say, well, there are times I felt like giving up and I'll I'll ask them to tell me more about that and I'll get a little bit deeper. But yes, I do ask that very directly.
1: Okay. Penny, can you talk a little bit about how you would provide your services to someone with aphasia?
5: Yeah, and that is a big issue. I know. Um, And the part of the issue is that neuropsychology in general, most people who go into the field are not going into it to do therapy. They're going in it for the assessment component and most of them do outpatient work. And so it's hard to find people in neuropsych who actually do psychotherapy. I can say that you have to, one of the things you have to learn to be good at, and I learned this a lot from the speech pathologist, is using multimodal communication being able to incorporate a lot of um, hand gestures, um, getting to know, like kind of trying to look at the gist of what someone's trying to say and make sense of it without them having to spell it out completely. Um, A lot of picture writing. Um, Kitty was very good at that. We did a lot of communication early on with, uh, if she couldn't articulate it, she would try to draw a picture to get across her message. And so there was a lot of, you know, incorporation of different strategies like that to make sure that they're heard and understood. And then I can communicate that back to them and then hopefully find a way to communicate suggestions or questions to them to help them think about their situation.
4: Mm And Dr. Wolf, I I went to NeuSycologo, and uh, uh, i i was trying to link language but i was failed because i have uh i have a facial but i but uh, uh mathematics i i was wonderful
5: oh so you're talking about a neuropsychological evaluation mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, that's unfortunate because um, with a lot of our neuropsychological tests, there's a, a large verbal component to them. And it's really hard for people with aphasia to do well on those sections, even if they know in their head what the answer is. They can't always get it out. And that's, that's very frustrating for people. I know that it is.
2: That's right for me, too,
5: because <laughs> yeah. I, I know what, it, what I want to say it. And it's hard for me to say it. I know, I know, and I know how frustrating. Well, I haven't experienced it, but I know from observing that it's very frustrating for people. Yeah.
4: But but me, mathematics is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful.
5: Mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> well, and I think that's something that people struggle with early, and when they first have something like this happen, is there there's oh. an. The fear that people will think I'm stupid now because I can't speak the way that I did before. But as professionals, we all know you're still all as smart as you were before. You're totally smart. It's just you can't get the words out.
0: Supposedly, I forget all the, the uh when you go take these tests for like two or three days and they read all this <laughs> stuff and all that. And I was like, after I got hurt and I was in the army for like four and a half more years, and then I did a test like you know maybe like a total like 10 years later and they're telling me that I still haven't gotten any better than like like six sorry, six years ago so
5: <laughs>
0: I don't you know I guess the tests are not the same as like the way I can talk and read and write and so.
5: Exactly and I think that's what's important is those tests are designed to pick up certain skills um, and a whole broad range of skills and just because you maybe don't do well in one area because of your aphasia or your injury doesn't mean that you're not good in all these other areas. And I think it's really important for people to recognize, hey, I still have all these abilities that I, I can use. And maybe I'm struggling with this over here, but I have all these other great abilities that I can use to compensate for that area that I'm having trouble.
4: I am not stupid. You are definitely not stupid.
1: It,
2: it, interesting for me, because when I was I was trying to say something, and I, I, I can't do it now in Bulgarian. I speak Bulgarian, not not much anymore, but I, it was interesting because now I see okay okay like in Bulgarian I say well I can't say that but I can say that you know and so. And now I would do it in English and I would do it in English and say, no, I can't say that, but I can say that so I can do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I can't, I, I can't do it for, the, the, okay. But then I can say, wait a minute, in English, in English, I can say this way and I can do it and, and I would do it. Yeah, that's read.
1: probably an acquired skill from your Bulgarian that maybe your vocabulary right. wasn't as big, so you can't find the exact word, but you could describe it or use something similar.
2: I can see it. Okay, I can't say it, but I can do it like that. And it was, okay. it, it was good enough.
1: Yeah, good enough. Exactly. I want to go back to the mood idea and sort of 2 prong. How what is your your feelings on medication to improve uh, mood? And for those folks who really are kind of anti-med, what do you suggest for sort of managing
4: mood? Uh, I am, I am depression. What is it, depression, Dr. Wu?
5: Uh, What are you asking me? I'm sorry, what, an antidepressant? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different different antidepressants. (laughs) I'm happy. (laughs) So usually, I mean, I I definitely deal with this on a regular basis because I'm not somebody who's going to push someone to medication if they don't want it. So I have a lot of discussion with patients about what their specific symptoms are, how severe they are, and whether or not we feel like an antidepressant is the way to go or not go. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking and um, for some people, I, I think recommend, the recommendation for medication is really helpful if someone is just really having a hard time pulling themselves out on their own of where they're got, or they feel like they're declining The other aspect too is for um, like, there've been different studies with patients who've had stroke and I I don't know if they've done much with brain injury yet but we use it for this too, is for motor recovery. Some of the SSRIs that are out now have been found to be helpful with motor recovery after stroke. And so you've got a dual benefit there of helping your mood but also helping motor recovery. So um, we definitely use quite a bit of antidepressants you know, without pushing them on people. Um, And it also, those medications help with anxiety. So sometimes maybe someone isn't fully depressed, but they're having a lot of anxiety, maybe even from just being afraid of trying to stand up for the first time when they feel like they're going to fall. And there's a lot of anxiety and it's interfering with their therapy. So it's kind of when it gets to that point of, you know, it's interfering with therapy, it's interfering with their ability to engage as much in treatment, that they just feel so emotionally overwhelmed and are having a hard time managing it. Those are kind of the the people that I'm gonna recommend it for first. For the other folks, I'm gonna do talk therapy. Um, and again, if they have aphasia, then we have to work with that. We just have to find ways to communicate. And if, if it's on the inpatient side, if it's really a struggle in the beginning, I involve the speech therapist to come in and let's work together and try to find the best way to communicate so this person can be heard and that they can get, you know, support back. So it really is dependent on where the person is, what their desires are. I feel like most people, even if they've never liked psychology, usually by the end of the first session, when I've talked to them, they feel more comfortable because they were allowed to, you know, say how they're feeling and I have to say, and I'm not trying to brag here, but I think in the time I've been here, I've only had a couple of people who've actually said, you know what, I just don't want to talk to psychology during my time here. Most of the time, people are appreciative and like being able to express themselves. And even if it's just the frustrations of being in the hospital and the sense of helplessness that people often have, they have this sense of loss of control. Like I used to have a lot of control over everything in my life. Now my body won't even do what I want it to do. I have to go to the bathroom when somebody tells me it's time I can go to the bathroom, or I'm waiting an hour for someone to respond to the call bell. Those are serious issues, that sense of loss of control. And so again, it just kind of depends on the person. I don't know that there's a a clear pattern. There are some people I think need to be on medication and that they would really benefit, but they say no. I don't want to do that. So then I try to do psychotherapy with them while they're here.
0: Uh, I always wondered about that, like, because when I got hurt and uh, I went to uh, RIC in Chicago and I had a, uh, I can't say these big words, but I could call him a shrink. And he come <laughs> once a week, every day, every, every week.
5: Mm-hmm. And
0: he would look at me and he had like a, uh, he looked like a, what is a Russian back in the day at the, uh, it was I can't remember he was no naked. no no I know who you're
5: talking about Gorbachev
0: yeah and then he and they had a uh, right here and then he be talking to me and I can't talk I'm like and then he be like uh, you need to be you look like you're depressed you need medication for that and like I'm like. I've looked depressed since I was born, you know, and Patty's just like, I don't think he ne- he wants to do it. and I don't think he needs it. And I'm just like, no, I don't need And he came every, for four weeks, he came, sorry, four months. He came every once a week and he asked me to, to take that medicine or that, uh, to feel better, happy, whatever. And I was just kind of like, I don't. I didn't understand it because it was just like, I don't really need it because I have these other problems with my whole, I had so many medicines at the time, I was out of control. Yeah. And then I started, then I got a, uh, started having seizures. So then I was just like, I really didn't want to take something on top of that. Yeah. So I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember why he, I don't know. Is that how you do it though? Like for that, like right away, you got to find out what's better for the brain or.
5: Well. I mean, certainly we see people right away to assess for you know, mood issues, but it sounds like what you're describing, you might have had a very flat affect. So a lot of people, when they've had a neurological issue, their affect is very flat and that looks like they're depressed. I do not base my diagnosis on that. Um, I go by what someone tells me or communicates to me. So if you look depressed, but you're telling me I'm fine, I'm happy, I am not. I would not be somebody who would be recommending medication for that. Even if someone's crying, like I have therapists who email, I probably get an email once or twice a day about this patient cried during therapy today. And I'm thinking to myself, thank you for sharing the information, but you know what? They're going through a very difficult time. It's normal to cry. You know, crying is normal during this. So it's, it's important to, I think, really step back and understand is this person depressed or is this just normal a human emotion and being able to distinguish between those.
3: So some stroke center patients or cry just because they have a, like I don't cry before the accident I cry. Sometimes, obviously. Now, I don't. The opposite is people who, if they just walk in and then all of a sudden it just waterworks, it just depends.
5: Well, I think what you're talking about too is you know, some people in general just cry more than others, and there's nothing wrong with crying in general. I mean, it, it's part of our human functioning. But there's also something called bulbar affect, where people lose the ability to regulate their tearfulness. And so sometimes they might start crying for no reason at all. Right. They even get embarrassed by it. They're like, I don't know why I'm crying. Or they might be in a very somber situation and start laughing and not have control over it. So that's a whole different thing. And there's a specific medication for that, too, if, if it's something that's bothersome for people. But... It's different than an antidepressant.
1: But you know what, Chris? You made me think of something when you said you don't cry anymore. And you, you've asked me about that, that you feel like there are times where it would be appropriate to cry and you don't feel like you can anymore. And I never felt like I could answer that question, but I maybe
5: Dr. Wolf can. Well, I mean, it can be a couple of things. It could be related specifically to the injury. Just like people can develop a or affect where they can't control their emotional reactions, it can also have the opposite happen of like that you have a reduced range of those kind of emotions or the ability to cry. It can also be medication related. Um, sometimes when people, for example, if you're taking an antidepressant, people do find it in a way, it's, if it's at a certain level, they have a harder time crying, even though they might feel like this is a sad situation, but I'm just not feeling the same level of emotion. And that's kind of what antidepressants do is they kind of um, take the edge off of the emotion. It's not like it's going to go away entirely, but, um, so someone might still feel sad, but they don't have that same level of it. So they're not as tearful. So it, there could be a number of factors. I mean, I think the big thing is, does it bother you? Uh I
3: mean, so, Example. I'm a firefighter, so I in the past two years lost three bodies and I can't cry. E- Everyone else can, mm-hmm. but I like I want to cry because it it's emotional and letting tears you kind of soothe and and yeah so
5: okay so do you feel like that means that you can't grieve properly because you're unable to cry
3: yeah
0: inside that's inside inside there's <laughs> no crying at baseball no, Craig
5: Baseball. <laughs> no, but there are, sometimes there are other ways to get that sense of relief. Like some people really get it from physical activity, like strenuous exercise can help them release some of that emotional buildup. Running, we running for
2: me. What was that? It's running for me. Running? You're
5: ru- running. Yeah,
2: I can't do it now, but we used to do it a lot of times.
5: Yeah, because that's another way to kind of get a release, right? Yep. So maybe you can explore some other options for finding ways to release some of those feelings.
0: Start dancing.
5: Dancing, yeah. I know that seems strange, but it does, it's, it's different and- Oh yeah.
0: Cause I can't run anymore, but you gotta move around nowadays. Yep. Something fun. Yeah, indeed.
5: You can also, like if you're talking about grieving is you can do a kind of a ritual of things, I mean, you kind of have to make it up for yourself, but an example would be like writing a letter to the person you've lost and, you know, taking it out and like setting on on fire, but, you know, burning it and letting the smoke go up and kind of thinking about it as them leaving and, you know, whatever ritual works for you, there are ways to kind of um, process things besides just the tears.
0: Yeah, my my mom died a couple weeks ago and we were Sunday we went over to my brothers and uh we had dinner there and everything like we have a big family so like all the brothers like four of us and uh then my brother and his wife they had the uh this huge bag and was just like these pictures of my my grandmother or sorry my mom had and so we started looking at we only we only looked at maybe like 10% 10% of it because there's so many pictures and stuff, but it was really cool to see some of these pictures. I haven't seen them forever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but I think we wanted us to leave because they need to get up in the morning. <laughs> so yeah, it was, but I have some of the pictures now, so it's really cool.
5: I'm sorry for your loss.
0: Yes, yeah, so he, he was pretty old. so.
1: Penny, what did we not ask you about neuropsychology that you wish we had or that you wish that our listeners understood better about the role of neuropsychologists in or sort of on the slow road to better?
5: Um, I think for me, the biggest thing is I would, I would really like to see more psychologists looking, um, seeking out some training and working with people who have aphasia so that there's a greater number of people out there available to do this. I think if they just did a little bit of training, they could do it. I think that people get scared. They think, oh, I'm gonna do something wrong because I don't understand this person, but I would like to see more general psychologists out there just getting a little more training in this area so that there's more availability.
2: It's interesting. Uh, Janine and I help people say I have a problem and many times they don't know that. They just don't know that. It's very interesting. Yeah. Aphasia, I don't know what's a problem.
5: It's... I guess I would also like to encourage people um, who have aphasia to not be afraid to, to try psychotherapy because I think sometimes if they feel like I'm not gonna be able to communicate or they're not gonna understand me, they're not gonna go and try and You know, if you find a good therapist, even if they haven't had a background in neuropsychology, if the connection is good, you guys can work together. So, for listeners, I'm hoping you know, give yourself a chance, try it. Try on different people. You don't have to stick with one person. You can go to different people and see who you like, who you connect with. Because the connection is as important as any aspect of therapy. That's probably one of the most important things is to be able to have a connection with that person.
0: And what's one thing I thought would be interesting? I think people with, uh, like, going for PT or OT or even, like, when I was in the hospital with, like, nurses, like, they should need to learn more about, like, aphasia. So the, mm-hmm. the person could say something, but they can't, like, you know, if we're trying to say something, but maybe they would know how to, what to look for and help, you know? <laughs> I think about it.
5: No, I I think you're right. And actually, when we have fellows come in, and these are postdoctoral fellows, so they finish their degree and they're coming here for the last part, you know, this additional training to get board certified, usually. They often ask me when they first start working with me, like, how do you work with patients who have really severe aphasia? And maybe they can't even understand what you're saying. And I give an example. I will never forget this person. (laughs) who came and she she was from another country originally so she English was her second language she was had receptive aphasia and expressive aphasia so she couldn't understand what I was saying to her and she and I couldn't she couldn't talk at all at the point at the point that I saw her but when I walked in I could see on her face that she was so afraid she didn't understand what was happening she was crying and all I did was I reached down and I took her hand and I just held it and I said to her, even though I know she can understand everything that you're going to be okay, you're safe. I just kept telling her, you're safe and holding her hand. And she looked at me and I could see she understood what I was trying to get across. And as she got better, I mean, we had a really good relationship and she was so grateful. And I'm like, sometimes it just takes a small thing to get the, the message across to someone that you understand what they're going through, what they're feeling and that you're there to help them. And so I use that example a lot with my fellows to say, you know, because they'll say, well, what's the point of going in to see this person if they can't communicate? And I'm like, there's more to communication than talking. Right? There are a lot of different ways you can communicate. Yep. Um,
1: I, I was going to say, I don't think that there's anything better than that thought right there. That's awesome. I want to be respectful of your time. You probably have someone getting ready to knock on your door. I know what it's like in <laughs> the hospital. 11 o'clock, 1101, are you in there? I just wanted to say thank you, thank you. On behalf of all the survivors you've helped and for taking your time to be on the slow road better with us. I think we're gonna wrap it up on this episode of
0: Road
1: Our lawyers made us say this.
5: Disclaimers.
1: What about disclaimers?
5: Your opinion, the group opinion is not valid. Well,
3: it is, but
2: it's valid, valid. but I'm having a disclaimer so that we don't get in trouble.
1: Yes. Doctors. Doctors. Who's doctor? Theirs. Um, they. They. Um, They. Their doctor. Yes. All right. Yes. So, if people hear something on this podcast, you should ask your
0: doctor. Doctor.
1: Amen.